You are listening to The 441, the podcast where I ask questions about the juggling community, do the research, assemble a panel of experts, and talk it out to inspire you to continue the conversation. I'm your host, Bailey Chihan, and this is The 441 on Juggling Education. As someone who has recently started from square one learning to juggle, I'm interested in where and how juggling is being taught in settings more formal than my backyard. So I gathered insights from a crop of seasoned juggling coaches. One of our panelists from this episode told me that there's not a how to teach juggling class. But before we get into that, I owe you all an introduction to who I am. My juggling story began with a conversation between coworkers. I work as a multimedia journalist for a newspaper in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and my friend Sam tipped me off that a juggling festival was coming to our city. Little did I know that choosing to cover this festival would change my life forever. Thank you, Sam. I did a couple stories about the festival, and I hoped that I would interview professional circus artists about their lifestyle and careers. Unfortunately, the festival ended before I had time to do that, but I was lucky to have an editor who encouraged me to pursue the story anyway. That story became a mini-documentary called Life in the Circus Arts, which examined the role performing arts plays in American culture through the lens of today's circus artists. Now, I didn't intend for it to become a documentary, but it was an official selection for three film festivals in 2023, including the Circus International Film Festival. Even after my work was published, I felt like I couldn't leave the juggling community behind, so I volunteered as a video producer at the 2023 IJA Festival in South Bend, Indiana, officially learned to juggle, and decided to start a podcast in that order. My hope is that these podcast episodes inspire action and further efforts to share juggling with the world. While putting together this episode, part of me wanted to know if there was a best practice or a best way to learn how to juggle. As an adult learning something new, I find myself wanting a shortcut. Spoiler alert, there is no shortcut. And we'll talk about that in this episode. We'll talk about failure and frustration and how these coaches help their students through that. This episode looks at ways people are successfully passing on the tradition of juggling in real time. Here's a rundown of our guest today. Amy Chen is the lead teacher and site director for Bindlestiff Family Circus After School. Amy resides in Cohost, New York, where she is currently renovating a historic New York State Armory known as the Castle for Circus Arts and Shenanigans. Benjamin Domas Rue is a circus and theater director, performer, teacher, musician, and clown from St. Paul, Minnesota. He is the director of the Youth Juggling Academy, an achievement program for jugglers. Benjamin is also a teaching artist with Compass, an associate editor with Modern Vaudeville Press, and a guest instructor with Social Circuses, Circus Harmony, Trenton Circus Squad, and Circus Juventus. And finally, Kayla Malmgren is the founder of the after-school program Reach Youth Juggling Club based in Edina, Minnesota. Kayla lives in Maple Grove, Minnesota, and is in her final year of college at Gustavus Adolphus College, where she is pursuing a self-designed major in entertainment and coaching. Thank you all so much for being on the first episode of The 441. As you know, we're going to be talking about juggling education today, and I think we could start by going around. Let's start with Amy. Could you give us an idea of the environment that you teach in and kind of tell us some background about Bindlestiff After School? Yeah, I teach with um, Bindlestiff Circus After School in their upstate location around Hudson, New York. And a lot of the programs that we have right now are operating in community centers around Hudson. 
And for a lot of our students, it's sort of we are the activity that's available at their community center on a given day. So they don't necessarily enroll to take a circus class. They go to after school and then we show up on a given day. And it's, if you want to do circus, come up to the gym. It's a little bit drop in style, but we do like culture building. So we always start together in a circle, do checking questions, games, and then do circus skills. So it's cool because sometimes we get students who have had no experience with it at all and they stop in and check it out and then uh, the program's been operating for I think 17 years in Hudson so at the same time sometimes we have uh, like younger siblings who know that their older siblings took it. And you've called yourself a traditional teacher what does that mean? So in uh, terms of more traditional circus arts our students are taught to be generalists so the classes that we teach aren't juggling or acrobatic or aerial specific. They learn a little bit of everything. So juggling is their foundations, but they'll also get a chance to do acrobatics. Sometimes we do aerial. We do a lot of stilt walking. We do some tight wire walking and some unicycling. Thanks, Amy. Kayla, can you tell us about Reach Youth Juggling Club? Of course. Reach Youth Juggling Club is based off the model of Jughead's Youth Juggling Company, which existed from 1994 and then just recently closed down in 2023. For a long time, the Jugheads was involved at multiple IJAs. There have been a lot of people in and out. They have a huge alumni program, which I myself graduated from the Jugheads program, which is how I started Reach. And so Reach, the idea behind it is picking up where Jugheads left off, but trying to make it its own thing as well. And so taking what was great about Jugheads and maybe adding some new stuff and seeing how it adapts over time. I really want to be more involved in the Twin Cities local juggling community and not just be its own bubble because I know for a lot of years Jugheads was kind of seen as its own thing. The kids didn't really have much exposure to other things other than a small weekend at a festival at which most of them would stand in the corner, which I myself am guilty of, of course, but trying to offer a space where kids can go to a festival, but then maybe incorporate whether a workshop or something else to be more engaged in the festival community. How do you use your experience as a former competitive juggler um, in your, your role as a coach? That's a great question. The first thing I do is I teach the way I learned best. And that was by incorporating a bunch of different teaching methods, not just sticking by a linear scale, but if something is working and it's clicking, then kind of staying on that path. But obviously if it's not working, then finding a different path. A lot of students who come into Reach Youth Juggling Club might not even know how to catch. And so starting with just a ball and one big ball, throwing it back and forth and not just focusing on that one ball linear path into two balls into three balls, but trying to get creative to help the student be successful. Because that's the most important thing for me is to help students learn how to be successful and develop that confidence. So they want to continue juggling. Oh, we'll definitely talk more about that. And then Benjamin, tell us, you're not specifically aligned with just one group. Um, tell us about what where you teach. I teach all over, all around. Uh, I, I started teaching with Circus Juventus back in 2013. Um, their old coach retired and they suggested that I take the place. And I was like, that's great. And so that's where I started sort of learning how to teach and the different ways of teaching. Um, then I left in 2014 as I started touring and performing more. 
But that took me to uh, St. Louis and then I got to teach with uh, Circus Harmony and learn how, how a social circus is structured and the teaching environment there, which um, then I was also able to go and be a guest artist at the Trenton Circus Squad, as well as doing like workshops here and there at juggling festivals, sort of growing and learning how to transfer all this knowledge. Um, and then in 2016, I applied here in Minnesota for a teaching artist company or organization called Compass. And this is an org that's been around since the 70s. And what they do is they work, they started as, a, as poets, poets going into schools and teaching poetry. But eventually it grew to incorporate all the art forms. And so when I applied, I was like, I want to teach juggling. And uh, the first thing the panel asked me was like, is juggling really an art? And well, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we went into it. It was like, it was great. It was amazing. And, and they, I got in. And so through that, I've been developing this curriculum that I've taken from all these brilliant people um, and have adapted and learned from. And uh, so now that puts me into places, not just elementary schools, um, public and private, but also like library systems and aging adult uh, homes. I worked with um, a dementia center and learning to work with that community. So Compass, is you know the teaching artist org and one of their main things that started out was a week-long residency a week-long teaching residency and so you go in monday and you'll teach five different um five different classes um, um the same thing over the course of the week and so from monday to friday you may have a goal of creating an art project like like a sculpture or or something like that sometimes we have a week to make our own little like circus performance, right? And so, so that's the residency program is taking them from zero knowledge of anything circus arts. Um, then we take them to being like, okay, uh, what did you learn? Like as a, uh, as a circus art, not just technically, but also historically and contextually and all these other things. And is your goal to get them to juggle or is it to get them to appreciate juggling? Uh, my goal is to to raise appreciation for the circus arts first and foremost. The, teaching for a product is always always difficult and I think detrimental to the learning process. So if we just teach to be curious about something, uh, it's uh, for me it's a lot easier as a teacher and as a student. It's just like I'm curious about this, and so that's the goal of the residency is just let's be curious about this for a week no grades, no nothing. Let's just be curious and see where that takes us. You mentioned social circuses. Could you tell us what a social circus is? No, I can't. that's a question for social circuses. Everyone has their own uh, definition. Uh, Amy, what's a, what's the definition of a social circus? <laughs> I don't know. Bindle stuff has been moving away from the model of social circus, um, but I think I would describe it as focusing on social emotional learning goals. Um, as much as technical skill. I feel like we've been moving away from it because I think for a while there was an idea that it prioritizes social emotional learning and that it can't coexist with a high level of skill. So I think a lot of programs are realizing that 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 idea does a disservice to the students. They absolutely can and should coexist. I previously mentioned that I was hoping our panelists would provide a shortcut for me. I'm highlighting learning something new as an adult because I do think it gets harder. As a kid, a lot of things you're doing are things that you're doing for the first time. 
I learned to juggle this year? Wow, it's hard. It's really hard. I want to share a personal observation. So I started studying music before kindergarten, and when I was five, I started taking piano lessons. So I spent a lot of my childhood studying piano and music theory. Um, And I added alto saxophone to the mix when I was in middle school, picked it up really easily. Contrasting my experience with music and juggling, music is something that I've been experiencing success with consistently for years. Even though I'm not practicing every day like I used to when I was in school, I can still sit down at the keyboard and sight read super well. After time off of practicing juggling three clubs, um, I, I usually don't collect at the end. This is a totally normal experience for the level of practice and studying um, that I've put into these two different things, right? But there's still that ego in my brain that's like, ooh, you failed. You are not good at this. You would feel better if you didn't keep failing. So you should stop practicing. So there's a lot of frustration and discouragement. So I brought this topic up to the panel. So I want to talk about failure. This is something that you can face while learning a new juggling trick every few seconds. You throw a ball up or a club and you don't catch it. One of my current juggling goals is to lock down a basic three-club pattern, and even getting eight catches has taken a lot of practice and patience. I've definitely had practice sessions where I've dropped more than I've caught. So how do you talk to your students about failure? I think kids have the tendency to feel their frustration in different ways. And I think oftentimes in school districts and in classroom settings, they aren't necessarily given the option to fail consecutively because when they do fail, they are seen as potentially uh, stupid or lacking knowledge. And I think that is more on a peer basis or on a self-inflicting you know, motion of life. But I think there is also something to be said about the way the classroom might be designed in giving grades and giving opportunities for students who are quick learners to outshine maybe their peers in other circumstances. But in juggling, in order to succeed, you have to fail. You have to learn how to do it wrong in order to learn how to do it right. And the more you juggle, the more you drop. That's just the way juggling works. And if you are stuck on three balls and you never want to drop, then you might not get to know any cool tricks and you might not be able to progress and be able to do four or five balls or not to mention six or seven balls. And if you let that fear of failure tear you down, that can be very detrimental. And so I think seeing students overcome that barrier of failure being a bad thing for them or have that portray what they're worth, or it can be a vulnerable experience for a lot of students. And walking them through that mentality of it's okay to fail. It's good to fail. It is important to fail. You cannot succeed without failure. And for some students, they pick up on that quicker than others. 
for some students, it's really difficult. Um, it's important to allow students, from my experience, to feel those frustrating emotions because in order to overcome them, one might need to feel them. So I think giving students intentionally difficult things to do right away and giving them that opportunity to engage in that frustration and then maybe stepping it down a little bit and saying, hey, here's a trick that's different than what you're doing, but it might on paper be easier for you to do. And that can give them that sense of accomplishment. And so kind of simultaneously pushing them to work with that frustration and work through it, but also allowing them to feel that success and want to keep juggling. Because if you only focus on frustration development, then you might have a kid who hates juggling forever and never wants to do it again. I love what you were saying, Kayla, about school. And something I try to explain to my students, because school is sort of where they're doing most of their learning. And I feel like, you know, they're supposed to pay attention and study in school. And I feel there the model is if you listen to everything you're supposed to listen to, fill in all the blanks you're supposed to listen to, and you go to take the test, every mistake that you make um, chips away at that 100%. So every mistake has a consequence and the grade gets lower and lower and lower. But I'll say with their circus skills and with juggling in particular, they, they're building from the ground up. So I'm like, you're not starting at 100 and every time you drop, you lose a point. Like we are starting at zero and we're building it up from the ground. And the only way that can happen is by making a lot of mistakes and dropping a lot. And yeah, I think that's something that's, that's difficult about school. I think they go through life with this anxiety that every mistake is a consequence. Every mistake is something wrong. Um, that reduces their value. Um, but I think that's when you can get that message through to a student that a lot of the things that we do in life are actually building from the ground up and um, mistakes and failure is the process of learning how to do something. I think that's such an important lifelong lesson. In addition to all of this, there's, I have two thoughts. First of all, it's it's framing framing failure as as a choice as well like teaching one of the very first throws is a drop. It's like when we do our one ball sequences, when I get to teach, it's like one of the throws is an intentional drop. So we can choose to drop, like, like uh, failure can be a choice as well. And it, it could be cool. In failures, you can see the frustration, right? I love this phrase, in order to overcome them, they have to feel them. And how you allow them to feel them, it's, uh, um, then there's a there's a cool observation you can also make with the student that I found is that you can ask are you how do you feel and they'll usually respond frustrated or angry or something and it's like wow that tells me that you really want to learn this which means that you're more than likely going to learn this uh, it's it's just interesting how failure is so universal to to learning and I'm reflecting on this topic of failure um, after my conversation with. Amy and Benjamin and Kayla has concluded. But before I move on with the rest of our conversation, I just want to say I admire those of you who push through the failure. And a way that I am reckoning with my own failure in juggling is sharing it with others. So I shamelessly post to my Instagram story videos from my practice. I especially love sharing the videos of me getting whacked in the face. In fact, I don't expect, but I, I hope for somebody to message me and say, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Again, wanting that shortcut for something that I, I truly just need to figure out on my own. 
But I think I post those videos to stand up to my own ego. There is a real voice in my head saying, wow, you suck at this and you should stop. And I'm not going to give into it. And you shouldn't either. Before we get back to the conversation with our panelists, I want to stop and say thank you. Thank you to our sponsor, Modern Vaudeville Press. If you like circus and you like books, these are the gold standard of circus books. Modern Vaudeville Press is a boutique publishing company that specializes in high-quality nonfiction books about juggling, circus, and vaudeville, and anything related to that. You can view their entire catalog at modernvaudevillepress.com. My first MVP book was Juggling, From Antiquity to the Middle Ages. I'm a little bit of a geek. I love learning about culture and history. It's got all of that and some awesome art. So I'm recommending reading Juggling, From Antiquity to the Middle Ages by Tom Wall. Pick up a copy from Modern Vaudeville Press. I've really loved the conversation so far, and I hope that other coaches listen to this episode and take away something that they can use in their own classrooms. Benjamin once told me that there's not a how to teach juggling class that you take to become an instructor. So I'm curious, what's something you feel is important to keep in mind when teaching juggling or circus skills? For me, the most important thing is to always keep in mind centering the students. So everything is just a process of guiding younger people, facilitating younger people uh, into becoming the people that they want to be. So I just try to keep in mind that I'm not centering what I want to teach them. I'm not centering what I want them to be able to do. I'm not trying to make little me's. I'm just sort of trying to be a presence in their life that is helping them be who they are. So I think the biggest thing is to center the student because with that comes figuring out different learning styles, different approaches. Um, when a student is frustrated, figuring out are, this, are they the kind of student who wants it broken down a little more so that they can find that success? Are they the kind of student who needs to just take a breather for five? Are they a student who should be like distracted with a completely different activity for a little while? And it's funny, I'm sitting here and when I first started teaching, it was just a one for one. I'm going to make a little me. I'm a great juggler. They're going to be a great juggler. Let's do it. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember attending a workshop in an IJA once where, where, uh, where a big performing juggler was teaching and they were just teaching their, their routine. And I think it was there that I realized like there, you can just teach someone's routine it's it's that's a nice way if you're interested in that and I remember when I first started teaching I was like I'm not going to be a teacher and I looked up the definition of facilitate um and what what that actually means and there was a great educational powerpoint I think I found that I just went through the notes I was like oh facilitation versus like just like trying to download knowledge into somebody it's it's two different things what have you, uh, what's your approach when you, you start a class? Um, what works for you? Like you have to know who each and every student is because of all the different modalities. Um, I have a little trick that I do, which is I ask them all these starting questions, but I also, I also ask everyone to share what their favorite game is, um, especially in like a school setting. Uh, everyone is different and you can see people who play video games or board games or running games or sports games. And that sort of is just a, such a quick insight into everybody's um, unique interests. And that can help in, influence the way that that teaching style is then delivered. Well, let's let's try this. Okay, so ask me what my favorite game is. What's your favorite game, Bailey? 
what game i almost say i never say favorite i say what game do you like to play well i like to play villainous which is a very complicated board game <laughs> that uh, people in our audience might not know um but it's like a card game oh cool look like a strategy card game is it a multiplayer card game co-op what we're we talking about here yeah it's multiplayer um and you are a disney villain and you are trying to beat the hero um so you have your own um, objective and then the other person that you're playing against or the group of people they have their other unique objectives and while you're on your quest to complete that you can mess with them and try to make it harder for them so it sounds like you're competitive bailey i am a competitive person All right. So me, teacher Benjamin, would then take my notepad for that day and I'd, and I'd make an actual note. Bailey, um, card game, competitive. So I'm wondering about the rules that you have when you're teaching. So in the program that I currently teach, rather than having a set of rules that we introduce to students um, on the first day of class, we have what we call shared agreements. How that works is instead of having rules, we explain to the students that shared agreements are ways that we agree to treat one another during our shared circus time, that we'd like to hear what are things that are important to them, like what are agreements that they would like everybody to abide by. And we're where that came from was Paris Hip Hop Juggler and I used to teach a program together in Hunts Point and it was a pretty difficult program. It was drop-in style, it was teens, so the attendance could be very inconsistent. And when we started teaching that program, we kind of inherited this list of I think like 24 to 30 rules um, that were like it was apparent to us that what was happening is the teachers before us, um, it's sort of, it was sort of, you could see in the list that like one day a student did something <laughs> and then it became a handful of rules the next class. But there was also no system of accountability or enforcement. So even though there was this long set of rules, there were no boundaries or expectations. Um, and the class was kind of chaos. So um, after a particularly difficult class, we came into the next class and we sat down with them and we we're like, you're, you're mature enough and responsible enough to know that this doesn't work. What happened last class, what's been happening, it doesn't work. And we want to help you learn what you want to learn, but we need to like fix our class culture and our environment first. So how do we want to go about this? And we always feel that we got lucky because there were three older students in class who said, well, we have all these rules and teachers talk about enforcing rules, but there's never any enforcement. You guys are soft on the rest of the class. Everybody knows it. It's the same kids doing the same things over and over again. So then so then we asked them, okay, so, so how do you want your class culture to be built? What is the learning environment that you want to have? So they came up with six very basic rules um, that they want that they wanted to enforce for themselves. And so, you know, we made the promise to them, we're gonna enforce these, we're gonna come up with a system of accountability, we're gonna set those boundaries, but also this is your learning environment as well. So like you all are empowered to help enforce the rules that you want to operate with. And so out of that came this idea of shared agreements relating to power dynamic rather than being teachers in a position of authority coming in with a set of rules that we enforce on the class because we've decided it's what's best for them. We start every class by saying, what what are these agreements that we want to have? Um, so it's coming from the students. And, and then the students also know that it's not just rules they have to abide by, it's rules that we have to abide by also. So if we're saying, you know, respectful language, 
Um, and we expect the students to speak to each other in a certain way and to speak to us in a certain way. We also owe it to the students to pay them that same respect. We don't get to break the rules because we're teachers. And then because we teach in different locations with different age groups, I actually like hearing from the students because it also lets us know what are concerns that they have. So sometimes when a student says like, well, you know, an agreement that I would like is that we not comment on each other's bodies. Um, that's honestly not something that I would think is like a fundamental rule to introduce on day one, but it also lets us know, you know, sort of what they're dealing with in their school day or in their in their learning environment. Um, but then also uh, it helps with the power dynamic because again, we're not just telling them these are rules that we enforce because we're teachers and we're adults and you're little kids. Um, I try to think of it as sharing power to sort of even the dynamic. Do you work with other co-teachers? Obviously Paris the hip hop juggler and you worked together for that specific mm -hmm. time, but do you currently have a collection of coworkers or people that you work with? What is your dynamic between yourself and the other coaches or staff and That's rules that you might have for each other that isn't necessarily applicable to the students? Right. That's um, actually the way I'm teaching right now. That's um, so traditionally how I've taught. It's been more with peers, people my, of similar age, of similar experience. Um, upstate right now, um, I'm considered the lead teacher. And then um, the the person that I teach with most consistently, she's just become an assistant coach up from a junior counselor. She's 19 years old. She's been in the program since she was nine. Um, and then we have counselors in training, most of whom have also been my students. So actually the thing, the difficult thing that I have is as they get older, um, like I want them to have confidence as teachers, obviously, um, like we hire them because we trust, um, you know, we trust their skills, we trust their ability to work with kids. Um, but sometimes because they've been my student or because they've worked under me, they have a difficult time. Like, a lot of times I'll tell them, like, if you notice that I'm doing something in class that's not working, like, don't worry about, like, stepping on my toes, just speak up and be like, <laughs> um, you know, like, you're my co-teacher. So it's interesting, as they become my co-teachers, I find that it takes, like, a little bit of, like, um, encouragement for them to not think of themselves as my students and not to think of me as an authority figure that we're co-workers. So there's a lot of times that I'll wind up telling them, like, I'm not your supervisor, I'm your co-worker. Um, and then we do... Uh, we'll do staff trainings before the start of every um, session where we have a Bindlestiff Circus After School. Um, we've come up with a training manual with our expectations and our job roles on. So um, before getting in front of the kids, we're all clear on what our roles are. And then organizationally, we have this a system like if they're having a problem with me, but they don't feel comfortable telling me, then they know who to go to to have that conversation um, with who will talk to me about it. And I think also um, just sort of an understood philosophy that we have. I think a lot of people understand this, that like when you're teaching with other people in a group, even if you don't necessarily agree with your co-teacher in the mo in the moment, like definitely don't like don't raise a conflict with your co-teachers in front of the kids. <laughs> so that's a really big one, too. So definitely there'll be times where I'll be like, that's that's not what I would have done. But it's like but I'm going to if if it's not harmful or dangerous, of course, it's like that's that's what I'm going to support. We understand to support one another, even if it's not what we would have done. Here's Benjamin again, continuing the conversation on power dynamics. I'm reminded of a story from a summer camp I taught once, and it was just me. Um, 
in a room full of, I think it was like 15 to 20 kids. And it was really strange. I remember getting to the summer camp and the, the leaders of the camp were like, all right, here's your, here's your class. And then they walked away and I was like, whoa, like this is not, this isn't cool. Le- leaving me with 20 kids alone in a gymnasium. <laughs> um, lots of weird power dynamics could happen there. Uh, and they did. Uh, so, you know, it started off pretty normal. I was still kind of a younger younger uh, teaching artist and it was all going kind of good. But at some point, you know, the power tipped. And I think the class of these like just about middle school aged kids realized I didn't know what I was doing. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, There's juggling props everywhere. And so they just started, they just started being, you know, kids at recess basically, which couldn't, couldn't fault them. I didn't set up. I didn't have any shared agreements. I didn't, my classroom management was not on point that day and it was chaos. And I like blew out my voice from yelling, being like, Hey, whoa, come back. Like stay in this area. Oh no, (laughs) I'm losing control. The power was all theirs. (laughs) And I sat down and I was like, Oh no. And there's like 20 minutes left of class. Did what I could let them, let them wreak havoc and cleaned up and left and thought, oh, geez, this is not good. What am I going to do tomorrow? I have four days left with this class. Ah! Um, And so it came back in the next day and just was like really honest with them and, you know, really gave them all the power and said, hey, what happened yesterday? And had a conversation. It was like, this is how I felt. Um, And I didn't like feeling that way. (laughs) What do we, what can we do about that? We have a big gymnasium. It's just me and it's all of you. How can we work together to make this fun for everybody? Because I want to have fun too. And that's when we actually started talking and negotiating and finding uh, this, this balance. Um, And it was a really interesting learning moment for me about the, the, some, some educators, think that they have to be in control the entire time and that can lead to to really boring uh, educational practices and where not everybody is having fun Uh, I just I read this phrase when I was doing some research um that power is dynamic and it needs to be mutually constructed and I think that that summer was a really interesting example of that power being mutually constructed I also learned the ability that a juggling workshop doesn't have to be juggling the whole time. You can have some students drawing circus posters for the end of the week presentation. I have found myself in similar circumstances with a full year left and I'm working with them for nine months. And whether it's the first day or it's the first month or it's the first semester and they might, I might see them doing something And then I guess at the time, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, they might be throwing props in a way that they shouldn't be throwing them for a long time or, you know, being disruptive. And at the time I might say, oh, that's fine. We, We can have fun. But then realizing that it's a destructive pattern and trying to go back on yourself and say, hey, actually, I know we did that yesterday, but today we're gonna change things up. And being willing as a coach to be honest with them and say, hey, I don't have all the rules put together in my head right now. I don't have a manual per se of everything that we might discuss and discover in this class. And I want to have 
moments where we might be pushing the boundaries because it's not something that I thought of. And that can lead to creativity for sure, even though it might be in some cases a negative response. But I also remind myself of a mistake you make once as a student or as a coach can be a lesson. You know, they can do it once and say, hey, let's not do that. But a mistake you make multiple times, that's where it can become a problem. But not allowing it the first time to become a problem because some students just don't have that awareness or have that, you know, mind of it's my first time holding a journaling club and I want to use it as a sword. And as a coach, I might say, hey, come on, let's use common sense. But in the juggling world, there might not be a common sense that we all share. And so opening up that conversation, that power dynamic to be mutually constructed in that way and to be mutually deconstructed at times, I think is a really important comment that you made and that I wanted to elaborate on. One one way I think about that is that um, there's like a set time for different like segments. Like there is creativity time. Like at the end of class, we'll have 10 minutes pick whatever you want, combine whatever you want. And that's our 10 minute creative time. If that involves like throwing a ball as hard as you can, well, I mean, I've done it. So I can't be too, I can't be too, uh, too judgmental, but it does then go like um, when a student asks, can we, can I grab these four props? I'm like, uh, what time is it? And they're like, well, it's 3.30. I'm like, uh, 3.50, uh, <laughs> 10 minutes at the end of class. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. I'll go back to three ball. And it's a cool conversation then of just being like, is it, is it time for that? Do you agree with it's time for that? And then they go, you're right. It's not time for that. Okay. Um, but still not negating <laughs> and, and having control, uh, which there are three things I found. If I could share quick, there are like three ideas that just blew my mind when I was looking at them. Three ways to think about power from this article I read. Power over, which is the urge to control. The power within, which is sort of a personal empowerment, and the power with, which is the work cooperatively with others. Um, and so I, I don't know what I'm going to do with those three definitions, but they are cool, three cool ways to talk about power in my brain. Um, Benjamin, something that I think I liked is when you were saying, you know, after that first chaotic day, and then you go and you sit down and you're like, you know, that that wasn't really fun for me. I, I, I think of that as being power with. Um, and I think I like that we're talking about um, the honesty as well, um, because that's something that, like, I always try to be honest with my students. Like, during the year, there are certain administrative things that we have to do that nobody likes getting through. They're boring um, and stuff like that. So I'll just be honest and I'll be like, I don't like doing this either. <laughs> like, I know you guys don't like doing this. It's boring. I don't like doing it either, but we can all help each other out by just, you know, just focusing for the 10 minutes it's going to take to do this and get through it. Cause yeah. So, um, yeah, but I guess I, I was thinking like the being honest with them and asking students for help, like, you know, like I need your help to make this work for all of us. I think of that as being power with and being honest with them, um, how, how we can all make it work. What are your thoughts in incorporating, maybe if you're with a group of kids and the power dynamic that you have with them, and then expanding that to maybe the power dynamic that their parents might have and the interpretation or their expectations of what they have and how that difference in power dynamic might incorporate into your teaching and saying, oh, well, the kids' parents signed them up to learn three balls and they might have a certain expectation. But if now they're balancing peacock feathers, how do you 
it, how do you communicate the the mission behind what you're doing and why you might change things up when they have a specific uh, interpretation or a specific expectation for that? I do experience that as a dance teacher um, quite a bit. So it's like, I will, I will experience dance parents, um, you know, who will come in and they'll be like, you know, well, my child expects to have a triple pirouette by the end of the semester or whatever. Like, I'll tell them, you know, it's a process. So if you come in and you see that, like, if you come to pick them up and you see that we're not like drilling triple pirouettes the entire time, it's like, there's, there's a whole process. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'll basically ask that, like, you know, I'm your child's dance teacher for a reason. <laughs> So, so please trust me that I know the process that will get them up to accomplishing that. And the question reminded me of something that I have to be careful of because sometimes when I'm talking with students about the way that I'll do things with them as a teacher in terms of giving them um, options or certain autonomy that I'm aware they might not be given at home, then I will tell them like, this is the way we've agreed to do this in the classroom. So that doesn't make it okay for you to go home and tell your parents like, oh, well, well, my teacher does it this way. So you have to let me do it that way too. So a lot of times I'll be like time and place, you know, you may be asked to do things differently at home. So this is how we do things here. I always encourage parents to, instead of demand, to to engage through questions, just ask more curious questions. Um, if if they come to me and they're like, hey, how, how can I help them get better at their whatever trick? I'm like, duh, don't, don't tell them what to do. Just ask them what happens if you do this? What happens if you do that? Don't, don't say, throw it higher. Say what happens if you throw it higher? If you think you know how to, how to help them just because then you can kind of translate that curiosity. Cause for me, it's always curiosity coming back to that. If you can make a student curious about what they're doing, they'll be more likely to pursue it um, intentionally. Amy and Kayla, you both, um, I talked to you ahead of this call you both use peer learning in your teaching and you use it in different ways. Amy, could you give, give us an example of how you use peer learning? Uh, because our program has been going for a little while. Like I said, sometimes there's older siblings or younger siblings. So we might have younger students who are just coming into the program and we have 13 year olds who have been in the program for a long time. And we also have a we have a junior um, counselor and training program. So students who have aged out of the after-school programs can learn how to teach with us. Um, so I kind of, sometimes I describe myself as the laziest teacher um, because if a student has a question, then I'll be like, oh, well, let's ask one of your peers how, how did they learn this? How did, um, or we'll say like, you know, was there anybody who was struggling with the same thing? How did, you know, what worked for them? Um, and something that I believe is that um, when students can see themselves in the process that they're learning, they're more likely to be curious and to stick with it. Um, so that's why I'm a big proponent of peer learning um, and also giving um, like children in the in the learning environment a chance to be role models and to share with one another. Yeah, I have two ways of answering this question, very similar to Amy. But the first is encouraging students who juggle to pass with one another. And so if you're not familiar with passing, the way it works is you throw with your right hand, you throw it straight across, and the person across from you will catch from their left hand, throw a self throw, and then it'll continue kind of like in a box formation. And so encouraging students to pass with one another at the same ability level. And so if you know how to pass and you can get 100 passes with a coach, that's great. 
but it might be better suited for you to pass and try to get 10 throws with a peer or someone who's at the same ability level as you. And so getting them to that point where they can be a well-rounded passer with their peers and improve in a different way from if they were just to pass with a coach. We see a lot of growth in that model of teaching and to pair them up with one another, setting smaller goals with a peer and have it be a different set of goals. So they're not regressing, but they're also just working hard in a different in a different way. The second way I can answer your question is through our peer mentorship program. So we have students who are older in high school and they might be competing for the IJA, they might be practicing to compete at the World Juggling Federation Association, but giving them an opportunity to be a mentor will put them in a club with some less skilled jugglers and get that experience teaching. Also giving them that experience with catching those bad passes. And that also gives an opportunity for younger students to see, oh, hey, here's this person who I look up to, a high schooler, and they might be a fourth grader and say, hey, I want to get as good as you because I want to do what you're doing. And that offers an opportunity for our high schoolers to interact with our kids the way us as coaches can't do because they see us as just too old, too old for them to relate to. For me, in terms of peer learning as well, um, it's not only that like I'm an older person and so kids don't want to interact with me as much as somebody closer to their age. Um, but in a lot of the programs that I teach, I also don't match, like I don't match the demographic of my students in terms of um, like in terms of being East Asian, for example. So I use a lot of um, peer learning because um, when they have a role model that they can see themselves in, then that tends to increase their appreciation and their curiosity for what they're doing. So sometimes they learn the most from the person who might not even be the most technically skilled juggler in the room. Um, but it's not like when they're really little and they're just learning their basic, it's it's not, it doesn't matter if they're, it doesn't matter if the person they're learning from in that moment doesn't juggle five clubs or seven balls, as long as they're really strong at teaching the basics um, and can encourage, um, can encourage students' curiosity and be, be a role model that the students can see themselves in. You can like plant little seeds of peer learning um, by sort of giving one group uh, a trick and then another group a trick. And then they start seeing it like, what? And then they, they're, that curiosity makes them go ask, well, how do you do that? So they're like setting up this peer learning. So I consider myself to be a new young juggler. Um, I, have, I can do three balls. I guess I can do four balls. I cannot do three clubs. And that's the scope of the things I've tried, right? So there are a bunch of different ways for young jugglers like me or young people to track their achievements. And um, Benjamin, uh, as director of the Youth Juggling Academy, you're cooking up something new to help young jugglers. Would you like to tell us more about that? I would love to. I'm the, I believe, the second YJA director. And so we inherited um, a program called the Badge Program, which is an accomplishment program driven by the urge to earn your badge. However, when we were talking about the sustainability of it, you know, having to make hundreds of buttons and then send them out. And uh, the original program, I think, had had a grant applied to it. So it was free. And now it's like, there's no more money to make buttons with. What do we do? Um, so we came up with this idea of sort of a sticker book, like an adventure book. Um, and we're calling it a badge book. 
And the idea that we're going to take all those old requirements, we updated it to be more uh, uh, representative of all the juggling props in, in the culture and have made it into a sort of passport-ish looking book that allows you to track your own progress um, and then have that validating sticker pull and sticker stick. Um, and then you can show it off because it's kind of fun to be like, look at all these things. It's just a, a cool way, hopefully, to to start a program and then hand that booklet off and be like, and here's where else you could go um, if we're in like a school residency or if someone comes to a festival and they don't know what to do next. You're like, well, here's a bunch of ideas. We've talked about a lot in this episode about the passing down of information and the nuances and the challenge of learning something new and reckoning with failure. Have you considered how you deal with failure when learning something new? Have you ever considered the way that you learn or the way that you were taught a certain skill or the way you teach a certain skill? If you have a story that you'd like to share about your own failure in your juggling practice or learning something new as an adult, I genuinely would love to hear that. Next time you see me at a juggling festival, let me know and we can continue the conversation then. While I approached this episode to learn how juggling is being taught, I was delighted that the conversation focused on how to be a good instructor, how to be a good facilitator. And I loved what Benjamin said about how if you're frustrated while learning something new, that means you really want to learn it and you probably will. That's something I'm taking back to my solo backyard practice sessions. I want to end on something Amy said to me when we first met. She said, you don't need to be able to juggle seven clubs to be a good juggling teacher. I love this statement because it's true. Nowhere in our panel conversation did someone say, well, in order to teach juggling, you need to be able to do this trick. To be a good teacher, you must create an environment where people feel comfortable to fail. And I think that's something people can take into their solo practice. So thank you, Amy, Benjamin, and Kayla for all that you do and for taking time to talk juggling education on the 441. If you have a topic you'd like featured on the 441, please email your pitch to the441podcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced and edited by Bailey Chihan and Benjamin Domas-Grew. Our sound designer was also Benjamin Domas-Grew. Thank you again to Tom Wall and Modern Vaudeville Press for sponsoring this episode. And thank you to eJuggle. The editor of eJuggle is Scott Seltzer. eJuggle and special programs such as the 441 are made possible by IJA members like you. An IJA membership ensures the IJA will exist not just for the jugglers of today, but the jugglers of tomorrow. Not a member? Consider becoming a member today. Pay it forward and help assist fellow jugglers for years to come. Visit www.juggle.org for more information on becoming a member today. That's the 441 on Juggling Education. I'm Bailey Chihan.